There's a place some of us go each fall, a place where the ring of a bell filters through the covers, and hurried shouts of bird up bring everybody to attention, a place where the playful puppies around our house are transformed here to driven bird finders, and where there is confidence in the slow pace of the silver-muzzled old veterans where our friends tell the same old stories each year, and none of us seem to mind. Where great shots are forgotten, and epic misses never fade. Where an old gun will have a story to tell, if only it could speak to us. Where all the good seats are claimed by the dogs. If you have a camp, you know these things all too well. And if you don't, well, you're always welcome here. So pull up a chair, tell us about your favorite gunner dog, and we'll admire the birds together and talk the night away by the fire. Welcome to Bird Camp. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Bird Camp podcast. We have a new, they're all new guests at this point, speaking with Travis Powers, one of our Michigan grouse hunters, dog enthusiast, and I was able to meet him finally the other day after interacting electronically for far too long so anyway travis welcome to the bird camp podcast <laughs> thanks joe and thanks for having me i appreciate the offer well it's my pleasure um gonna jump right into some of these things i have here on my note list um how have you been involved lately i know you have a you're heavily involved in your rgs chapter so i've I've been volunteering for the Robert J. Lytle chapter of the Rough Grouse Society for a while now. We're in Emily City. We do a lot of work in the thumb. Um, I have some titles in the chapter. I'm not sure that they matter, but one of them is uh, the Habitat Chair. So that's that's probably what's most near and dear to my heart is trying to get some uh, some woodcock work done down here in southern michigan which you you know what it's like hunting woodcock down here they're kind of down you know they have habitat more by accident than by management so so yeah that's kind of my passion is um i the woodcock is what introduced me to the grouse woods and they're in my backyard and nobody's really doing much for them so i i decided several years ago that 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 would kind of be my thing, and uh, and yeah, we've made some good progress here lately. Um, we always do projects up in the thumb. Um, there's some decent state game areas up there that that are managed for woodcock, and we've been able to work with Tammy Giroux up in Minden City and DeFord on some different projects up there. We had, a, I think there's been two drummer fund projects that were, that we helped get funded up there um, for some different work. We, we go up there and plant every spring, but um, the, our, our prized possession is with, without the drummer fund project this year, um, we were able to raise like seven thousand dollars for our chapter and turn it into a almost fifty thousand dollar grant for woodcock habitat specifically in zone three so that's we our chapter does a lot of great work and we work hard at it but um but but that's huge we're gonna um work in four state game areas in zone three come this spring and we're going to create some openings so that the woodcock can sing and dance next spring and uh, hopefully affect the the population positively but definitely get some people thinking about woodcock habitat down here so that's um that's kind of my thing right because i know we we heard about your project and we jumped in there and put some money toward your your goal and then uh, it seemed it kind of cascaded as well because once people knew you were doing something and i think your chapter is kind of known for getting out there and spearheading things 
um, was it four or five other chapters jumped in as well and helped donate? Absolutely. And, and that's the thing I think these national organizations are, are missing is how eager people are at a local level, especially in these metroplexes like you and I are in, mm-hmm. to at least manage somehow for the the birds we have left you know i i mean i'm old enough to have have kind of watched pheasant disappear from the the landscape and you know as a i'll be damned if i sit by quietly and and watch woodcock disappear you know um mm-hmm. but that, that people want to help people want to want to roll their sleeves up they want to put their shovels in the ground and if they're given money, it, it's so much easier to get money from people when you can tell them, hey, this is happening in your backyard because there's a lot of people down here in Metro Detroit. So so once we we can't, you know, it, it started as just kind of a, hey, what if we did this type of thing? And then literally it was a snowball that just kept rolling downhill and getting bigger and bigger. And you hit the nail on the head that people jumped in and wanted to help because one, they know it's much needed down here um, because it's not happening. Mm -hmm. But, but two, it's the, it's the financial, you know, it, if you want money from somebody, you have to convince them to to take it out of their wallet, that it's a good (laughs) cause. And, and when we can tell people, Hey, buy this, this raffle ticket, come to our banquet, whatever it is, they know that that, part of that money is going to turn into habitat in their backyard and that, and that makes it so easy. So yeah, that's, you know, the, the Michigan Upland experience, we really appreciate you guys hopping on board, but that that's what it was is people just kept messaging me and saying, Hey, what are you guys doing down here? We'd really like to help. And whether it was $50 or a thousand dollars, all that money got turned into Fifty-six thousand dollars. That's going to create some openings in Southern Michigan. So that that's huge. You know, RGS yeah. helped us write the the grant um, that got it. But that that's the thing about these wildlife grants is you can turn a little bit of money into a lot of money and get work done. So yeah, come. Probably in January, depending on how the weather goes, we're we're gonna have a we're gonna have a machine down here in in zone three, and I I think we're directly going to impact close to eighty acres. And like I said, we're just gonna create openings for um, specifically for American woodcock, and it's much you, you know you hunt down here, it, it's it's much needed. So yeah, that's. I've, that's, I've gotten to that's the point. our pride and joy yeah i've gotten to the point now where when i look at zone three i live just close enough to what we would think of as that that north of m10 where it's how much do i want to put in here versus is it worth driving north and you know luckily you know the game areas around me are doing some cutting a little bit and uh getting to read their their master strategy plans i actually do see that i think i think we're going to have a little bit better of a time coming up say the next five six years at least for sure with woodcock but uh we hear them in the spring um they dance all around my yard as well as out listening for turkeys in the spring we do hear drummers we hear we hear the woodcock um and i still get tempted to go north just because i'm like okay they're they're right here by me, but you know, this, this isn't the place. I don't want to, I, you know, on a, on a woodcock, I'd pull the trigger, but on, on one of the drummers here, I'm like, yeah, I'm not to the point where I would, where I think I would shoot one in zone three. At least I'm, I'm close enough to the West side of the state where they're, they're not quite a unicorn, but, uh, there's something that I would, I would enjoy and probably just leave the safety on. That's what I always tell people. If you flush a grouse in zone three, stop and buy a lottery ticket on your way home. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's funny because we, this was like pre-show 
chatter, but we were talking about, you know, we were up at the rooster ranch and, and his father bought that land because of, because of the grouse hunting back in the forties and fifties. It was Mm -hmm. unbelievable up there. And now, yeah, that's like, if I'm stuck and I can't, you know, get up North, it it's tough going up there just for grouse woodcock in the, you know, especially if the flights are coming through, but we've got some decent woodcock, uh, resident woodcock in zone three. So mm-hmm. I don't mind going up, but yeah, it, if you're going up to zone three to hunt grouse <laughs> this time of year, it, it's essentially a dog walk. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I, my, my dogs actually do need walked more, but, uh, I I actually committed. I ended up between the rooster ranch trip the other day, and uh, and another trip here with. I took my boys out yesterday, or no, it was it was Saturday, two days ago, and uh, you know we're 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 just slowly plugging away on the on the experience of being out and watching your dog. In this case, Caleb carried the gun first over Scout, and you know just trying to get the knowledge base. Uh, of what we do as bird hunting um into these young men they're they're 12 i call them young men because i i expect young men decisions and i expect young men thinking because that's what we're training them for when they turn 18 they're going to be just men and the young will be gone but uh it didn't work out for them i was able to at least now they're old enough i can shoot back up and i don't have to be six inches away from them the whole time um they did make good decisions. It was, nope, it wasn't safe. I didn't shoot. Okay, you did great. You know, there's there's nothing better than that part. Um, but most of my late season has always been the dogs or, or other things around here going on with either the the, the preserve down the road or or things picking up, maybe maybe other stuff. But with, with late season, and you do more grouse season like this year, I've, I've been seeing your your posts from, from late season hunting. What is it you look for? (laughs) (laughs) It, it honestly depends on where, where I am. I used to really gravitate toward conifer, especially like mature conifer with any type of undergrowth, um, that, you're always going because that's even some that's even escape cover that you're getting into there. So you know you can kind of start working that early. But um, but here lately, I there's still kind of everywhere on a year like this where the you know we had we had decent broods this year. There there are still some young birds trying to figure out where to go, and so. The past couple of weeks I've gone uh, up north, I, I'm working edges, like any type of edge, trying to find openings, um, and then scrub oak. I, I'm a sucker for scrub oak, especially if there's some some jack pine in there. It doesn't make for the, the best hunting. You'll flush 10 and maybe see one, but, uh, but that's why we go, is to <laughs> see that one. But, um, but yeah, the, I try to, I try to, they're all on the edges right now, at least from my experience. And that's, I'm, I'm not as, as educated as some of the, the, the good grouse hunters that have been at this for a while, but, um, I don't focus on food as much as I focus on cover and that it's worked out so far for me, but, um, but yeah, even the old stuff, you know, we'll, we'll walk 40 year old Aspen cuts with blowdowns and find them in there, but they're always on the edges and especially the South side or the sunny side of the edges this time of year. Um, especially in the mornings, um, that's been, that's, I know that's kind of like everywhere up north, but I rarely walk trails or I, I usually bust the brush with my dogs early season, but this time of year, dad's on the trail <laughs> or somewhere in an open and I'm just waiting for them to find it. And then 
the trick is to get in there before it flushes deeper in. But uh, but every now and again they'll make a mistake, and that's we found the brood Saturday, I think it was. I'm not sure they'd ever been flushed before, but they were on this on the edge of a a clear cut that was probably clear cut. I'm gonna say maybe two years ago. In like 10, 15 year old aspen. So you're talking prime early season cover, mm. and the birds are still there. And I, ironically, I felt bad because four of the birds flushed out into that clear cut. And I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I just put those birds out there where they have no cover whatsoever. But I'm sure they ran back quickly and and got into cover but yeah it was uh it was a sunny side of an opening and on a whim i was like oh let's just try this so it, it's the old saying they are where they are mm -hmm. <clears throat> and late season is all or none hmm. but uh but yeah this weekend they were all like scrub oak edges that's my face still hurts to be honest with you <laughs> I know Stephen has mentioned to us a couple of times that uh, about 40-year-old aspen, he says the male aspen at 40 years old starts to have buds that are good winter food source. Yep. And and I every time I look at 40-year-old aspen, I look at that and I think, man, there's got to be no way. But like you said, there are smarter grouse hunters out there than me. So I have to listen to the guys I know see more birds than me. And I'm like, okay, 40, 40 years old, man. Okay. But yeah, I took some of my, uh, friend, uh, my dogless friends out uh, two weeks ago, I think it was. And it, you know, it's always that every time you go up North, at least for me, it's like, okay, where are the birds now? And then once we figure out where they are, that's, you know, we kind of start gravitating toward that cover. But um, we walked for like an hour and I said, well, it's one o'clock. I said, there's an old stand across the road. I said, let, let's just hit these edges. And yeah, 40 year old Aspen. And yeah, that's, we got into them thick. And it, like I said, Stephen knows way more about this than I do and can probably just walk to them you know, depending on what time of year, what time of day, I still kind of figure, try to figure it out, but, um, it doesn't take me as long these days. Right. <laughs> well, his, I think he almost had to learn it that way to begin with, because if you're going to walk a cocker spaniel into a spot where there's grouse, you got to walk that dog within 30 yards of a bird. But man, exactly. And, and he does it day after day. I know, I know. That's the thing I've always wondered about um, about the the folks that run flushers is, you know, are they bust and brush more than we are? Are they just essentially walking the dogs to the birds? Because I mean, we have the luxury of just kind of moseying along until <laughs> until the beep or the vibrate, you know? <laughs> right. But, uh, but yeah, this weekend they were running from points. That's hmm. the silence was, we had a lot running on us. This was a tough weekend for, for a young dog, but, um, but yeah, I just, you know, I'm in that point where I'm trying to get him on as many birds as possible and days when they're jumpy, I just tell him it's building character, you know, but, uh. But yeah, this has been a good year, and and I think people overlook December grouse hunting. I I think it's some of the, it's become one of my favorite times to hunt, just because there's nobody up north, and put an inch or two of snow on the ground, it's as silent as you'll ever find it. You know. Hmm. I still have to try it. It uh, I always seem to find myself busy in December, but. Uh... What kind of dogs then are you running? I mean, you're not flushers and you're talking about points. So yeah. what are you running? Um, I, I run, I have, well, my two go-tos, I have a Llewellyn. He's almost 11. His name's Quimby. And then uh, 
Most people who know me know I have a, an Irish setter devil dog who's um, three and a half now. So he's the he's the future of my hunting operations along with the, I did mention earlier, I had a beagle mm-hmm. laying on my lap that she's definitely the future because she's like six months old. But, <laughs> but as far as bird dogs go, I... I have a couple of setters. I have a third setter that uh, mine are all rescues. Um, I don't hunt with with my female. She's an FDSB, but she was a little too far gone hmm. when uh, when we decided to adopt her, and we just did it because we kind of felt sorry for her. But um, but yeah, my, I've got two male setters that that pretty much go up north with me as often as I can make it up. And I, I don't know that I'm necessarily a setter guy cause it was an accident. I had a GSP that we rescued as my first dog. And she was, she's probably the best dog I'll ever own. And I miss her. And when we found out she had cancer, I started looking for a female GSP and it turned into a male Llewellyn setter because he needed a home, but <laughs> But yeah, I'd probably follow any dog um, if it came right down to it. But that's that's my crew for now. And my my older setters, he's an average bird dog. He's more of a grouse, or he's more of a woodcock and pheasant dog. Grouse, he's okay, but uh, but yeah, my my young Irish setter, I've. I've been a little obsessed about trying to get him to be a grouse dog and, and he's finally, he's, he's had a very good year. Let's put it that, <laughs> that way. I, I never thought I'd, I'd have a year like this, but, uh, but those are my dogs for now. I, mm-hmm. and then, yeah, I, I keep saying I'm going to get a spaniel for my next dog because I'm, I'll be 50 by then and I'm kind of tired of being the flusher and the, and the gunner <laughs> and the handler. <laughs> oh, sounds like you're back to a GSP then. <laughs> no. Oh man. I'm telling you, my first GSP was a fantastic dog. Oh my, she made hunt. I thought hunting was easy from age like, 25 to 35 i was like oh this is simple what are people talking about the dog just goes out there points a bird it's there yeah it turns out that's not the case (laughs) you must you must have got a nice one i got one that taught me all sorts of word combinations i learned from the masons i goodness i learned all sorts of things i should never do again with that one but Uh. Yeah, it, I mean, for me, I, I mean, I hunt with rescue dogs, so I I don't, you know, I've never picked a puppy out of a litter or put a deposit down or anything like that. I, When we adopted Quimby, the lady that runs the organization, she's like, well, what if he doesn't hunt? I, I just laugh. I said, he's, a, he's an English setter, you know. He, <laughs> he's going to hunt. She said, well, what if he's not any good? And I I just laughed. I said, I'm not any good either. I said, we go for fun. So, so yeah, he turned out to be a project, Mm -hmm. um, and, and taught me patience. You talk about words that you throw out there that you learn from the Masons. Yeah, that's, but yeah, I'm like a third generation Mason. So I, I, I know him, but yeah, he taught me a lot of patience and was a it, it took him a long time to find himself. Let's put it that way. So yeah. that's yeah. my dentist said something to me one day about grit in my teeth. And I said, you don't own setters. You'd understand if you own setters. <laughs> I, I had to be careful the other day. D-man somehow my GSP tested positive for heartworm and I'm like, okay. They're like, okay, he's, he's out of commission, you know, little activity we get him treated he'll be fine for next year okay i started thinking about it drummond's my my preserve dog that's my go-to for for pen birds it's my go-to for finding down cripples and of course if you ever have a client with you down cripples happen 
And so the other day we're out there with Scout and I'm having to tell myself, okay, this different kind of dog, you know, stronger on point, but a lot, lot weaker on the retrieve and on the recovery. And we had one where I'm seeing huge milestones from him getting, getting improved. But every now and then I look over there like, man, I wish I had that short hair again out. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I learned, it took six, seven years to figure out, okay, if you play to his strong suit, you know, no different than up at camp playing Euchre, if you call into somebody else's hand, you're going to expect, you know, as long as it's your partner, expect some good results. But, uh, yeah. So. Yeah, it, exactly. And that's, I, you know, I'm, I'm close to adding more dog power because with Quimby being 11, I, I need more dog power. You know how that goes, but, um, yep, I do too. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm looking at 2023 litters and yeah, my, my setter friends may be a little disappointed, but, um, I, I'd like to have a a GSP from, from Aspen thicket. And I told Dennis to, to make sure my name was on his 2023 litters because he, he throws some good pups and man, I, there was something about that GSP. Trust me, I'm a, I love these setters, but man, she was a sweetheart, and I'd love to have another one just like her. I'm not sure what I would get if I get another one. I The only thing that's going to pull me away from probably a GSP would be another Ryman. But... Uh... <laughs> that's, my wife just laughs when I talk about it, because... When I'm ready for another dog, it'll probably be the the it'll rescue the, dog the that needs rescue. a home. Yep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll say I'm looking for a dog. I'll get a message and I'll be like, okay, when, I'll take another one on. When I say puppy and short hair in the same sentence, I get strange looks from my wife like all the furniture better be made out of cast iron. Man, get a hound puppy. Joe, that... <laughs> nope, <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> this beagle is my my first puppy so granted i've never you know we always get rescue dogs so that they're, they're always we've gone through the puppy stage but my lord she weighs 14 pounds and is as destructive as my 90 pound irish setter i i have a family full of beagles if i need one bad enough i can borrow one man man she better run rabbits. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which come January, that's if you need me. That's I'll probably be out. Oh yeah. Running rabbits. That's you know Murphy points. Murphy points rabbits. So I've got some great rabbit holes picked out for her. So good. Oh good. So yeah, you know that's something to do in the off season, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. But I uh. Yeah. Here's something that came up with Abraham Downer the other day. And, of course, I asked him about the Andy Ammon chapter because at the time I hadn't known who Andy Ammon was. Do you know anything about Robert Lytle? I, you know, I knew you were going to ask, <laughs> ask about that. And I don't, unfortunately. <laughs> I know his family because it, they still participate um, but yeah, I don't know anything about Robert Lytle. Unfortunately, I'm terrible at, I'm a terrible historian just in general. And, uh, and it's funny because I, I, I meant to ask John today when I talked to him, Hey, give me a little bit of background, but I totally forgot. So, so no, I, I don't. And that's, that's my bad. So <laughs> I should have at least told you. <laughs> No, I, I I had it in my notes here as as I just wrote down the chapter you were with, and I was like, you know, I wonder. But uh, that's part of the lore that just doesn't get passed down anymore, you know. But yeah. but I will say this: his family is spent. They always show up in big numbers, and they come from pretty far away for our chapter, which which goes to tell you that that it was important to him and it's still important to the family because yeah we we get grandkids at our banquet so um so yeah that that's my bad for 
for not knowing, but like I said, <laughs> right. that's, that's par for the course for me. I details are not my strong suit. So, well, maybe I'll have to get one of them on at some point then, and uh, and do some of that historical digging. But uh, we'll switch to a little bit of camp talk. And uh, what gun are you currently shooting? My gun that I carry it, well, probably 99.9% of the time is a Franke Instinct SL 20 gauge. I think the weight on it's 5.4. So I, I can literally carry it all day and not know that I'm carrying a gun and it fits me perfectly. I'm like you, I, I have more than one. <laughs> And I picked up a 16 gauge in the off season that I, I really wanted to use as my grouse gun. Cause it's uh 26 inch barrels and it's wide open. And, uh, I, I don't shoot it. Well, I haven't found a good fit. I'm still looking to get a good fit on that side by side, but my 20 gauge fits me and I love it. I absolutely love that Franke. Hmm. So that, that Franke's an over and under then. It is. So maybe it's it's, just you got to get used to the side-by-side barrels. Th- this is my second side-by-side, and I, I won't lie. I, I can't hit Lake Michigan with either of them. But uh, <laughs> the, the second trigger, too, I, I wish I really want a side-by-side. My next gun is going to be a 28-gauge side-by-side with one trigger because I always forget that second trigger. Always forget it. So I've shot an over and under all my life. I tried the auto thing for a while and hated it. But um, other than my dad's 870 that I started hunting with, I, the first opportunity I had to buy an over and under, I did. And it's just, it lines up differently. I mean, you, you know, you shoot mm-hmm. different, it, it just lines up differently. And, and back to the fit thing that the one I shoot all the time fits perfectly. And you just can't replace that in a gun, you know? Nope. I got, I got one here that I don't think I could hit the wall of a cave from inside. I couldn't hit anything with it and my, my kids will probably get it if I don't sell it off first, but yeah, fit fit is an awful, awful thing. If it doesn't fit. It is. I need like a quarter of an inch on my, on this 16 gauge. And I just, that's my off season plans is to see if I can, cause like I said, a, a 16 gauge was, you know, 26 inch barrels and it's, I think it's skeet two improved, hmm. which I usually shoot like my 20 gauge. I keep skeet one skeet two pretty much all year long in it. Um, but yeah, that should be the perfect Krause gun, but I can't hit. I even practiced with it this summer because 16 gauge ammo for whatever reason has been easy to find. So I have a bunch of it. Yeah, I'm just throwing it out there for no reason. (laughs) (laughs) So so what model was the 16-gauge then? Um, It's a Lefevre. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's a Lefevre, yeah. And then my wife's um, uncle redid the whole gun for me. It, it it, It was in okay shape, but... He redid all the wood for me this summer, reblued the barrels. It is beautiful. And it's it I always kid that my my setters roll their eyes when I carry the side by side. And I took a wood I think I got two woodcock with it this year, but but yeah, I just don't have the confidence and I played competitive golf for too long and that's what my teacher used to always tell me is you know it it's all between the ears and I just don't feel confident with those side by sides yet so I'll keep practicing that's my uh that's my every Sunday in the summers you'll usually find me out at the sporting clays course so 
Yep. And I, I made the transition. I know the single trigger, double trigger quandary you're in. I went from a whole nest of Browning Satori's to a side by side. And I made sure that when I bought it, it was a single selected trigger. Just, I didn't want the additional headache. And I had already had 10 years worth of shooting behind me on single trigger, two barrels. And so finding one, it helped. And uh, as well, too, early American side-by-sides aren't exactly known for their fit either. But the, the thing that really helped me out in the end, I learned a different style. I love I love shooting skeet anyway, and I I found that the skeet field shows you variety with predictability, and so I ended up with a book here from the guys at Holland and Holland Shooting School, and I and a, it if you were to see it while I was doing it I would be standing there in the living room with the gun looking at the book on the coffee table and practicing all my swings and my feet and everything in the house before going to the gun club and dropping you know, three boxes of shells on skeet. And that English style of simply mountain shoot, and it doesn't matter if you use the Churchill or the Stanbury methods, they're both going to do the same thing for your gun, and that's try to clear out the garbage between your ears and just get the gun barrel in front and hit the trigger. Um, And it made a huge difference, but they also start out with a whole chapter on gun fit. Nothing works That's the key. So many people miss the fit part of it, you know? Mm-hmm. It could be. And that's, uh, do you tend, uh, do you prefer low gun? I always shoot um, low gun unless I'm playing okay. for money. That's the same thing. That's, I, I had a, a, a guy tell me a couple summers ago when I was shooting, he's like, you know, you'd do a lot better if you didn't start low gun. And that's, yeah. I, I told him, I was like, I don't walk through the woods like Elmer Fudd, you know, I, <laughs> <laughs> this is more point and click for me and i just i need to practice what i preach you know so so i'm a low gun guy myself yep. and i i it adds some variability to it and yes. I, i'll never be a professional shooter but um but it i i think shooting grouse and go into the range on Sundays are two completely different things. I know that might be a little, some people may not agree and I probably don't know enough about shooting to make that statement, but, but you, you get into a groove with grouse hunting, just like you do skeet shooting, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. skeet is pretty predictable. It's like, I shoot it there, you know, (laughs) that's where I pull the trigger. With grouse, it's so much more. It's so much more instinct. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I I rarely practice during grouse season because once I get into the that groove, it's like okay, forget the other stuff. <laughs> and it seems like it takes a while every year too. You know, it it does. I found that I don't practice during grouse season because all my money's gone. But during, and all your all your shells <laughs> I, i'm stocked up on shells i uh well thanks to the boys the dogs and things like that i don't shoot the way i used to and it compared to the guys at the club i did not shoot that much but i would run through 2500 rounds in a summer and most of it low gun and the i will i can always go back to this you can practice with the gun on your shoulder all you want but until you start to iron out that variability from at ready to on your shoulder hitting the trigger, if you don't iron that variability out, you're going to have streaky days where, man, I can't miss. I'm doing great. And then the next day, you won't hit a thing for a long time. And the more and more you iron that out and you get a good, smooth gun mount, it doesn't matter where that bird gets up or where they throw that clay from. You, you take that one thing out and you let your eyes do all that work for you, but it's got to become, it's got to become such a second nature habit. And all of a sudden at that point, side buys, autos, pumps, you can pick up any gun that fits modestly well and do well because your mechanics overcome the gun. 
Um, and there's something about training your eyes and your hands to just work together without your brain interfering that, that starts really at that low gun position. But. Yeah, I, I agree that when I got my first dog, I, I sent her away to a trainer and, and I actually went and took shooting lessons because I'm like, well, if she's going to be trained, I might as well. And I mean, <laughs> I'd shot a little as a kid, but you know, what do you know? So it, yeah. it's amazing circling back to my, you know, competitive golf days that I wouldn't have done it without a, a coach that could teach me what I didn't know. And that's, that's what going to a, to someone that, that teaches shooting. It's that what to look for. It's the mount. And, and like you said, before we even did anything, he's like, does this gun fit you? <laughs> There's, there are days where I know, I know there are birds out there that are still flying because the gun I had in my hand didn't fit. Yep. And, yeah. and at a certain point you look at that gun, like you failed me for the last time. <laughs> I almost threw a, threw a Benelli in a pine swamp one day. <laughs> and that's how I ended up with my Franke is I, one, it, it, I don't, it just didn't fit my eye. I don't know that it fit me well either. And then it was just something about an auto. I didn't, it, it was a different look than what I was used to. And yeah, it was a very nice gun, but it also, it was finicky about shells. So yeah, there was a double one day and hmm. I got mad and almost threw it in the swamp and took and traded it the, the next day and over and under and that's the reason i mm -hmm. almost always have a double barrel gun is because it goes bang bang <laughs> all yep. the time you know all the time yep. no more jams misfeeds nothing like that and that drove me nuts so so yeah i benelli makes a fine shotgun i'm not saying they don't it just didn't work for me <laughs> Right. I got a I got a pair of them in here where one I nearly sold last duck season. Just I couldn't hit a descending bird or anything. I think I went through half a box of shells with nothing to show for it. But uh, but a flushing bird on the other hand, the gun does really well. So I've I figured out my problem there. But uh, I don't. We'll circle back to uh, like you said. You you went and took a shooting lesson. Your dog was out doing bird dog lessons that's that's something that's really does get overlooked a lot especially when it comes down to that that uh i guess we'll call it the ethic i'm a big fan of some of the older authors that really did preach an awful lot of ethic that uh if we're going to make good shots and we're going to to kill cleanly a lot of it you know we're, it's not only the dog has to do well but then again in our end we have to do well um, and that really does get overlooked, I think, an awful lot. It it does. Our job is just as important, if not more, than than what our dogs are doing out there. And you you said it. I I mean, I'm probably guilty of taking some shots. I I shouldn't, um, but I, I do my best to take clean shots. And that's uh, this. You know, usually in late season, I'll switch to to six shot instead of my eights or seven and a half just to, you know, they might be a little further out there for whatever reason. But, but yeah, I, I try not to, to take shots where I'm not in a good, a good position, you know, because there's nothing worse than did I hit that bird it, now instead of hunting you're in recovery mode and there's been more than one time I I've had to do some recovery work with a different dog or go back the next day or whatever it is but yeah I, that that's a huge part of it is is making sure you don't leave birds in the woods and that's I you know the the setters and I have found I think a handful, at least four or five birds this year that I didn't fire a shot, Joe, and they were pointing birds. So 
people are leaving them out there, and that's a great point that the ethical side of our sport involves so many different things that we never think about. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, you know, here we are, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, we're talking about the, the lack of good habitat in our Southern portion of the state. And then here at the same time, then at the end of it, we have, well, the resource that uses this habitat that we know over the long term has been slowly declining um, along with the number of hunters that, that enjoy them. At what point is it like, okay, I mean, we've we've pursued birds. Hey, it got away. Okay, well, I mean, it's the only game in town. Let's go see about it. And then sure enough, you know, Chris's dog Elsa runs right over, comes back to us 100 yards later, and there's a bird in her mouth like, you did hit it. Like, man, it sure didn't look like I did. But the 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 number of good hits you can put with practice you know, I I hate to rely on a dog to be this miracle worker on the recovery when I have a dog that doesn't do that well and I have one that does it really well. How do you, you know, I, I can't put the one dog away and not use it, but I'd hate to have to walk back to the truck to get the other one. If I can cleanly knock it down hard, you know, the, the bird won't suffer. We, we get a recovery quickly. It goes in the game bag. It gets counted. Um you know, on the selfish end, you know, they, they do band them. So you want to find all the ones you hit. Just if, if it comes down to having to be selfish, you know, we always joke about that in duck hunting. The one that gets away was probably banded. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's a great point because I, I met up with a a new hunter this year that had, he had adopted a nine-year-old GSP like two weeks before. And that's the ideal age. I know. And she came from hunting lines. The guy's like, oh, yeah, she's been hunting all her life. She's hunting grouse. He's from Ohio. So I hook up with him. And I'm like, yeah, I'll take some walks with you, kind of show you where birds are, what to do, you know, whatever. So we went out with him. And uh, and it, Murphy had the fine. She backed. And I wasn't expecting a a bird there to be honest with you i was a little surprised and caught me off guard and and yeah it it took off and i shot it and i i aunt joe i didn't think i hit it at all but i told him i said i i always follow up shots always just to hear that flush again and i said sometimes if i think i got it i'll do it twice just to make sure and sure enough his this old gsp that he'd owned for two weeks walks over and points and i look in there and it's an injured bird and i mean it sucks to injure a bird and and not get a kill shot but it is what it is and it happens and that's the ethical side of it is if there's any doubt follow it up which i always always do but um but yeah she had the find on the injured bird and that's, you know, it took me a, it took me a long time to learn that lesson. So if I can pass that on to somebody else is always follow up a shot. Cause you never know that happened with a woodcock this year. Didn't think I got it. We follow it up and sure enough, another point, you know, that's the, that's the, the confusing part to the dogs is can you imagine from their perspective is half the time you yell fetch it up you get a flush because you didn't hit it and the other time it's like no bird and they walk over and point a dead bird it it's just it's amazing they put up with this <laughs> <laughs> i th- i think there's at the end of every shot especially with that short hair of mine i don't think he actually listens to the words anymore yeah bang bang you know i'll just go look you stay here <laughs> exactly that's yeah murphy thinks every time the gun goes bang now he's searching for a bird and that's you know those new guys i took out a couple of weeks ago that's i didn't quite see the bird and i'm like did you guys get it and they're like i think so and so i'm like you know murphy dead bird fetch it up and then next you hear the bird take off and i'm like 
that was a lie. You did not hit the bird. <laughs> <laughs> Had I said no bird, I would have been better off, you know, because he, he would have pointed it either way. So mm-hmm. that's, that's a learning curve for me is, mm-hmm. is don't yell fetch it, fetch it up if, if you're not certain because <laughs> they're going to point it again. And <laughs> it might take off. <laughs> right. I usually have a find it command. In fact, that's that's the way we trained the short hair here with, was was find it, and I think Scout the the setter is slowly picking up on on those keywords, but uh, I've noticed a lot of the things with him. The he doesn't point dead, he points injured a little bit, but the entire style of point is wrong, and you look at that and you're like, this is about to become a leap and crunch, and the and especially we do this at the preserves too. The guys like. Oh, he's on point. That looks great. And I'm like, no, 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 watch this. He's about to crunch that bird. And all of a sudden you can see him thinking like, no, nah, this one's bleeding. I got this one. Sure yep. enough, leap and crunch. And, uh, you know, then it becomes fetch it up anyway. But uh, the only instance I see that in is you get a cripple with some with a little blood or, or it's it's oozing or whatever smell changes there. And, uh, oh, 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 no, 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 this one's hurt. I got it. Yeah. That, that thing in there just clicks, and you can see his body language change. But uh, that's a lot of experience on the dog's end, too. I didn't teach that. But. You know, and it, it's funny, especially with a young dog, It that's part of the learning experience. And that's, you know, with, with my young dog, Murphy, that, you know, this weekend he had some low points, and that tells me that the bird isn't moving. He's got some where he's kind of flagging a little bit, and it's like, okay, Dad, I, it was here. It was real close. It might not be here anymore. It is what it is. And then, yeah, same thing with with the recoveries because I've taken him out on a few recoveries for my other dog, and it's like, please don't jump in and grab that bird because it's not how it works, and here he comes with the bird anyway. And <laughs> You just deal with it, but but that goes back to the confusion of a of a bird dog. We, you know, we we ask so much of them, and they have so many different variables to to contend with. It that's the amazing part of of the sport that that we pursue is the bird dogs that figure it out for us. Holy cow! Yep. Yeah. This one. The one's starting to get a little gray in his muzzle. And there's, you can see the experience when he's out running. And he's not strong on point, but that that knowing the difference between it's close, it's moving, you can just sit there and watch this dog. And you know that all those things are happening because that body language shifts. And it might shift four times in 10 seconds just from what the bird is doing. And I'm slowly watching the younger dog do that same thing. Low head, high head, flagging tail. You know, you can look back and you're like, all right, guys, this bird moved. Okay, well, where? Oh, about 30 yards that way. Well, why? That's the range of his nose. Bird's up there somewhere. And uh, just, just all that amazing stuff that happens there. You're like, how does it know that you shot it and it's hurt? Well, dogs knows. I mean, that's that's what the Navda group always said too. That that dog knows a lot more about that bird already. <laughs> so, I you got to trust your dog in the end. And uh, you know that's the age-old saying. And how many times do we neglect that? Most of the season. <laughs> that's the answer. <laughs> that goes back to the amazing things they do and how badly confuse them. You know, that's the the part of being a, an average handler, you know, mm-hmm. just to have a, a decent dog and and being an average handler is a is a miracle. Because yeah, I'm not a I'm not a great handler. <laughs> <laughs> My dogs carry more much more weight than I do. But <laughs> I always thought I was great. Yeah, I did for a while and until. I didn't, and <laughs> and now I just follow them. I keep my mouth shut. The best advice I ever got was, "Shut your mouth and follow your dog." And 
mm-hmm. and and that's what I subscribe to this day, you know, and that that's turned out to be the best advice I ever got. I learned that the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> the first yeah. One, first one, I made a lot of racket and told the dog what to do. The second one, put your whistle in your pocket, get into some birdie cover, let them run the wind however they please, keep the GPS batteries charged up. That's the only the only thing I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, my Quimby, I was a little too, I tried to handle him and probably set him back more than than I should have. But, but that just goes to show that, you know, back to the, the best advice I ever got that the same guy told me do no harm. And sometimes handling your dog is, is doing harm to them. Hmm. They need to figure that out on their own and they will. That's the thing is they will. (laughs) They're so much more smarter than us. (laughs) Oh yeah. I think they're a little manipulative too. Maybe they're a little too smart. They are the the truck point when you get. I swear they can smell the truck when you get within two hundred yards of it, and it's like, nope, we're not going there, Dad. They they start getting birdie. They start pointing stuff, you know, and it's oh, they just yeah disappear over the horizon. That that happened uh, late Saturday. It was our last walk on Saturday, and we were almost to the truck. We'd been walking like an hour and a half, and. And he goes on point and I can see the vehicle and I'm like, you, no way. And yeah, three bust out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, that just goes to show you trust your dog, yep. age old saying, but yeah, oh that's part of the fun, you know? Yep. Well, we have almost reached that magical half one hour time. Not that that really means anything, but uh, it makes a nice, neat, tidy package. But uh, it was good having you on, Travis. Is there anything, any parting shot that you want to throw out there that that you've kind of thought about as we've been talking? Um, You you know what? I mean, I saw something from MUCC today about leave your legacy, and that's that's kind of where I am in, in life right now is, is do what you can for the habitat for these birds. Cause it's not always going to be there. They need us. You know, I'm, I'm pretty partial to American woodcock because I live in Metro Detroit and their habitat gets bulldozed every day for housing additions. And I, you know, I see it firsthand, but but if you're going to follow dogs, do something for the conservation of our sport, whether it's habitat or mentoring new hunters or whatever it is. Do do something to leave your legacy. And if all you have to give is time, then that's enough. You know, not everybody has a million dollars to leave behind to, to habitat restoration, but we can all do something as individuals to, to further our sport because it, it's dying. And I'm, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. I'm, I'm closer to 50 than 40 and it, it won't happen in my lifetime, but the, the young folks need to really consider what hunting is going to look like 20 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now, and so on. And it's, that worries me what what we're leaving to our next generation and and that's everybody can do something so whatever it is you can do do it if all you can do is buy a raffle ticket for our gun every year that that's plenty but do whatever you can because it's it's shrinking and it's I don't know that it'll ever go away, but it's closer than it ever has been to going away. Yeah, well said. That's that's kind of the reason. Well, that's how I found myself here. Do that. Do that one little thing that presents itself to you. It, exactly. It, it. It's one. In the grand thing. scheme of things, it it's an inch of snow on the top of Mount Everest, but. 
But every little bit helps. And yeah, what what you're doing that's I mean that you know, you're 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 the younger generation to me, but it, this I'm, is great to see that that you I'm on the north the side torch. of forty already though. <laughs> <laughs> when you said Gen X, that was kinda like, Oh, he's we're in the same group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seventy three here. So but yeah. It is what it is. You, you yeah. just do your little part. And, and you know, Joe, it's changing. Like what you're doing with the podcast and what you're doing with the Michigan Upland Experience, it isn't the country clubs anymore. It's conservation and hunting. It, the whole landscape is changing right now. And that's – I hate to see people – from different generations arguing about what's pure and what's not pure and what's good and what's bad. We're, we're all on the same team. And that's, I played basketball for four years in high school. And that's, I, I remember my coach yelling, same team, same team. But, <laughs> but, but that's, that's where we are right now. And, and we need to just stop the arguing crap and, and nobody's doing it wrong as long as we're trying to, to keep our sport alive, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always that it's that one little step. It starts out with a, with a membership or it starts out with a work day or it starts out with listening to somebody, you know, such little, such little steps. And then next thing you know, you're going to have multiple dogs guns no other hobbies <laughs> you're gonna have four dogs at home every night and you're cussing like every other word is the f-bomb because <laughs> <laughs> that'd be four gsps right <laughs> oh, did no. i tell you i have a hound <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> that counts for two gsps right there oh Actually, it was our setter I had to kennel up. He got in the trash over here. The Labrador was there once the setter got in trouble. He, of course, dropped what he was after, and then the lab was there to scoop stuff up off the floor, which is fair game. I was going to say, you have a lab, man. They they eat everything, anything and everything. There's there's only one dog faster than a lab getting to something off the table. Yeah. That's a short hair. That's just short hair. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if the food hits, hits the floor before D-Man's sliding in there underneath it. But, uh, That's the, my Irish setter. That's uh, yeah. he's the first one to anything falling on the floor. He just he waits. So yeah, it. I don't know if it's breed specific. They're they're all a little bit nuts, man. It's all training. Get a nice big, get a nice big Ryman. He'll just set his chin on your table and wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's I. rumor has it your Ryman doesn't weigh as much as the Irish I'm telling you until you've until you've lived with an Irish setter you you don't know chaos <laughs> right. I dated a redhead once <laughs> all the they're crazy I, Joe all the chaos I wanted nope <laughs> yeah scouts I think only 55 pounds he's kind of a skeleton kind of dog but my goodness he runs nice Murph, uh, Murph, one of Murphy's nicknames, many nicknames is Thunderpaws. Cause yeah, you should hear <laughs> 90 pounds tromp through the grouse woods and he's growing, going through this phase right now where the, he's really hot on the relocates mm -hmm. and you can just hear the, him crashing through the woods and how the hell he doesn't put up birds <laughs> making all that noise. I have no idea, but <laughs> well, they're, they're used to deer making those same noises, right? I know exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, whatever, like it, like I said, I just let him roll. I, yep. I don't say anything. I don't blow the whistle. It's just like, yep, yeah, you do your thing. If you can figure it out, I'll, I'll come and flush it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, I appreciate you being on here and humoring all of us for a little bit over an hour now and uh, leaving us with some wisdom to go with. 
So Yep, I appreciate it, Joe. Thanks again. Well, you're welcome. And ladies and gentlemen, this is Travis Powers of the Robert J. Lytle RGS chapter. He's the Habitat Chair and uh, a good guy working on things in Michigan that he cares a lot about. Yeah, we'll see you all later. I'd like to thank everyone again for joining us. It's been another great bird camp conversation. Hope you enjoyed the topic. Hope you enjoyed the, the interaction. And if you would feel so inclined to support the podcast, uh, we can be found at Patreon under Bird Camp. And we only ask for the price of a cup of coffee or a happy hour special. Um, and we would be grateful if you could do that for, for myself and the birds. And we look forward to seeing you all again on our next episode.